Now, before we actually get into the meat of our study, I actually want to retract a statement I made last week. I said that the only passages that John could be referring to were Exodus 12, 46, or Numbers 9, 12, when he said that none of Jesus' bones were broken in order that the scriptures might be fulfilled. I was rightly challenged on that statement on Wednesday night in community group. And in Psalm 22, 17, and Psalm 34, 20, there are references to the integrity of bones, which could easily be applied to Jesus. Now, of course, I do not and never have claimed to be infallible. However, I also do recognize that it's important to be able to trust your pastor to rightly handle the word of truth. And so it's only right that I correct an error when it's obvious that I made one. So I applaud our members for being Berean and searching the scriptures to see if these things are so. And I do apologize for being hasty and overstating the case in that respect. It's also possible that I misinterpreted Paul in the same sermon in Galatians chapter 3 as referring back to Genesis 22, when that is not necessarily the case. Paul may have been referring to an interaction between Abraham and God as early as Genesis 12, and that perspective has some significant arguments in its favor. That was also pointed out to me at Community Group this past week. So again, I apologize for overstating, overstating the case in that respect. I will, be, I will endeavor to be more reserved and measured with my teaching than evidently I was last week. So moving on from there, looking at the passage before us tonight, Exodus 13, 17 to 22. This passage centers on two verbs. God visits and God leads his people. That's the main idea of this brief section. God visits and God leads his people. But how? In what manner does God visit and does God lead his people? We will attach a couple of adverbs to these verbs. Adverbs are words which describe verbs. And we'll add a couple of adverbs to visiting and a couple of adverbs to leading to describe the manner in which God visits and leads. And exploring these verbs and adverbs will be the substance of our sermon tonight. So let's begin by exploring the truth contained in this passage that God faithfully visits. God faithfully visits. Look at verse 19. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. God will surely visit you. This was a statement made by Joseph. And this is where the word visit comes from in our text. But this doesn't mean that God is going to drop by the house of the Israelites for a few hours or even for a few weeks, the way that an overseas relative might come and visit us. Something like that is what we usually mean when we use the word visit. But in ancient times, it often meant something different to visit. So listen to these biblical examples of the other usage of the word visit. In Leviticus 26 and verse 16, 
It says, I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache. Isaiah 23, 17. At the end of 70 years, the Lord will visit Tyre, and she will return her way to her wages and will prostitute herself with all the kingdoms of the world on the face of the earth. Jeremiah 15, 15. O Lord, you know, remember me and visit me and take vengeance for me on my persecutors. Jeremiah 27, 22. They shall be carried to Babylon and remain there until the day when I visit them declares the Lord. Then I will bring them back and restore them to their place. And Jeremiah 29.10, this appears to be a favorite expression of the prophet Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. That's a sampling. Um, but in view of these usages, you can see that at least sometimes the word visit means something like to intervene in circumstances. God may intervene to help, as with bringing the people up out of Babylon, back into the land of Israel. Or God may intervene to afflict, as in visiting Tyre and punishing her for her sins. But when God intervenes, it is sometimes said that he visits the person or the nations in question. And that's the sense of the word here. Joseph assured his brothers in Genesis 50, 24 and 25, which is what's quoted here, that God would surely intervene and bring them out of the land of Egypt. That's the sense of it. God visits his people. God will surely visit his people, Joseph says. And I say that God faithfully visits. Because earlier, he had promised to visit his people in their affliction. Back in Genesis 15, God had indicated that the Israelites would be afflicted in Egypt, but promised, and I quote, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions, and they shall come back here. That is to Canaan in the fourth generation. Whether Joseph had additional revelation about this intervention, or whether he was just trusting the original promise passed down to him from Abraham, he says in Genesis 50 and verse 25, God will surely visit you and bring you up out of the land, out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So the first thing that we see in this passage is God's faithfulness. Christian, God is always faithful to do what he has promised to do. He will surely visit you with all of the blessings of redemption that he has promised to those in Christ. As surely as he brought the Israelites out of Egypt, 
according to his promise, so shall he visit you. So shall he visit you with all of the manifold aspects of redemption. He has visited you such that you have received a pardon for your criminal record, so to speak. He has visited you such that the power of sin over you is broken. And you don't have to live that way anymore. God has visited you with His abiding presence. More on that in a moment. God will visit your soul with conformity, ever increasing greater and greater conformity to Christ's character. And God will visit your body with conformity to Christ's glorified human nature on the last day. In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 49, we read, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. God faithfully visits his people. He does that here in this text. And because he does it here in this text, we see what kind of God he is. He is the God who faithfully visits in keeping with his promises. And so we can trust that he will faithfully visit us with all that he has promised to us. The next thing we see is that God compassionately and reassuringly leads. Notice that the text says in Exodus 13, 17, that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. The way of the sea, the Via Maris, as it was called, would have been the shortest and most direct route to the promised land. Let's see if I can do this backwards here. Egypt is roughly here, and then up this way along the coast is Israel. And so the shortest way obviously would be up along the coastline, but this would have come through Philistine territory. And God did not lead them that way because he said, lest they see war and change their minds. So God led them out of Egypt this way to get up to Israel this way. The way of the sea, the Via Maris, would have been the shortest, most direct route to the promised land. And surely, the God who absolutely demolished the world's greatest superpower at the time could have safely led the Israelites through Philistine territory. God didn't lead them around the long way then for his own sake, as if he was too weak to do anything about the Philistines after he had absolutely demolished the Egyptians who were much more powerful. Therefore, God did not lead them around the long way for his own sin, but for their sake. Because of the Israelites' immaturity and frail faith, God led the Israelites the other way. Would the Israelites really have turned back? 
The answer is yes, they would have. God knew their hearts. And in fact, before we get through the end of chapter 14, which is coming up obviously very close uh, to where we are in our study, before we even get through the end of 14, the Israelites are already regretting that they left Egypt, which demonstrates their fickle uncertainty instead of their resolute determination to follow Yahweh in the Exodus. Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14 says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. That's what God does here. He shows compassion to the weak-minded, small faith, if I may put it that way, the weak-minded, small-faced little children that he has led out of Egypt. He remembers that they are dust and makes the necessary concessions to their friend as a father has compassion on his children. Christian, God often does this with us. As I've taught you before from passages such as 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 and 9, God sometimes overwhelms us on purpose in order to make us rely on Him. But many times, many times God accounts for our frailty. Many times God accounts for our weakness. Many times God accounts for our remaining corruption and suits our trials to our present state. Now this doesn't mean that we will always perceive that God is leading us by an easier road. The Israelites sure didn't feel like God was taking them the easy way when he pinned them between Pharaoh's army and the Red Sea. But in reality, it was the easier way. It was easier than the Via Maris, a way of the sea, whereby they would have had to come to war with the Philistines. Christian, you might feel that God has led you by a hard path. But consider that he might have actually chosen this path, whatever particular path you are on, as a concession to your weakness, as a concession to your frailty, as a concession to your limited progress in sanctification, and that God might have spared you other harder paths. God might have chosen not to lead you by the way of the sea that you couldn't handle. And yes, maybe he's put you in a hard spot like we'll see in Exodus 14 when he pins them between Pharaoh's army and the Red Sea. But perhaps that's the easier of the paths that God could have led you on. Alongside exercising his wisdom and his prerogative to do with you whatever he sees fit, God often exercises compassion in the way that he leads you in the way that he leads all of us Christians and this is a comforting truth it also provides a basis for our intercession in prayer with God that he might lead us compassionately in keeping with our frame 
The best way to intercede, whether for ourselves or whether for others, is to pray according to God's character and according to God's promises. When we see Him in passages like this, as the God who accounts for the limitations, even the sinful limitations of His people, in this case they did not trust Him enough, surely that's a sin. Surely if they would have turned back to Egypt when facing war with the Philistines, that would have been sinful. When we see God, therefore, in this passage as a God who accounts for the limitations of His people, even the sinful limitations of His people, and leads them along in a way suited to their deficiencies, it provides a basis for us to ask God to be likewise compassionate with us as he leads us along, to account for our deficiencies, our weaknesses, our sins, our limitations, our frailties, as he leads us. We see also here that God leads his people reassuringly. God leads his people compassionately. We see also that God leads his people Reassuringly. We see in verses 21 and 22 that the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. A pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. There's some debate whether there was one pillar or two, whether there was a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud, but I think it's something of a moot point. I don't, I don't think it's a point of great import. I tend to think it was one, though, which appeared as cloud by day and as fire by night. More than one commentator points out that when Moses was on Sinai, from his perspective, he was enveloped by a cloud. But to the people below, it appeared as if there was fire on top of the mountain. And so you have the presence of God meeting with Moses on top of Sinai, which is cloud to Moses and fire to the people below. I think that it makes the most sense then to see it as one pillar, which mysteriously appeared as both cloud and fire at different times. And so I'll refer to it henceforth in even in subsequent chapters as the pillar as opposed to the pillars. But this isn't really a hill to die on as I said. In any case the meaning is clear. As the cloud on top of Sinai and the fire on top of Sinai symbolized God's presence. God was in the cloud, God was in the fire. So that's what it means here. Verse 21 tells us that the Lord was in the cloud. That is the main thing to understand here. God was with His people in the cloud and in the fire. For the Israelites, there was perpetually with them a visible manifestation of the presence of the God who had bested the Egyptian deities and brought them out of Egypt. What a reassurance. Look at what God did to reassure them that He was with them. 
and that he continued to care for them. That his care for them had not ceased with the Passover and with the initial Exodus event, but that he was with them. What a reassurance. God is, of course, not with us New Testament Christians as a pillar of cloud or fire. But as John, as Jesus teaches us in John 16 and verse 7, that is to our advantage. Let me say that again. God is not with us New Testament Christians, visibly by a pillar of cloud or fire. But as Jesus teaches us in John 16 and verse 7, that is to our advantage. For we have God within us, as opposed to merely being among us. It is more advantageous to have the Holy Spirit within than to have Jesus physically present. Jesus says, It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. It's astounding what Jesus tells us about the preciousness of the presence of the Holy Spirit. You can check whether you're thinking about the Holy Spirit is correct or not by a little thought experiment. If you had to vote right now whether to have the Holy Spirit within you as you actually have or whether Jesus himself might be physically present here tonight but the Holy Spirit would not be within you. Which would you choose? And if you would choose the presence of Jesus physically here among us, but not the Holy Spirit within you, then you fail to grasp the preciousness of the presence of the Holy Spirit. You fail to grasp what Jesus taught in John 16 and verse 7, that it is to our advantage that we would have the Holy Spirit within than to have Jesus physically remain upon the earth. We have, we have, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, the God who bested the Egyptian deities with us. We have the God who we will read in the next chapter, parted the Red Sea, and then as we go on, provided water from the rock and led the Israelites every step of their way by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. We have that God who led them every step of their way, leading us every step of our way. As great as thy faithfulness says, thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. But now he is within us as opposed to merely, merely being among us by means of a pillar of cloud and fire as those less advantaged Israelites had. And this God who is within us by the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant has promised to never leave us. 
As Jesus said in Matthew 28 and 20, those familiar words, I am with you always to the end of the age. And as the author and the author to the Hebrews appropriates familiar Old Testament words and applies them to Christians in Hebrews 13 and verse 5. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Has he not said, Christian, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Christian, God is with you. The same God that we have been reading about in the Ten Plagues narrative. The God of the Passover, the God of the Exodus, the God of the pillar of cloud and fire. God is with you, Christian, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within you, as surely as he was with the Old Testament Israelites coming up out of Egypt. What a reassuring thing that is. Has God visited you? Has God given you the new birth, causing you to trust in His Son and therefore thereby releasing you from the curse and the power of sin? If so, do you believe that God is still compassionate toward you? That it wasn't just an initial thing but that God leads you compassionately. And do you believe that God is still with you, that it wasn't just an initial visitation, but that God is still with you and will never leave you, but will remain all your journey through, as He did in the pillar with the Israelites? Christian, God has visited you and still compassionately leads you and is still present with you. He wants you to be reassured that He will never leave you nor forsake you as He leads you home. As He wanted the Israelites to be reassured that He was with them. He has given us stories like these in the Bible and inspired commentary on them so that we would feel comfortable, comforted by His care for us. As 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 11 says, God's dealings with Israel were written down for our instruction. Lost soul, are you still under the curse and power of sin? Look back at the passage we studied last week and see that a mixed multitude went up out of Egypt together with the Israelites in chapter 12 and verse 38. This means Egyptians, as I pointed out last week. God was willing to take the Egyptians as His own who were willing to own Him, Yahweh, the God of Israel, as their own. Will you take the God of Israel for your own? Will you trust in Christ Jesus, who was a greater deliverer than Moses, and accomplished a better exodus, and will you follow Jesus out of bondage? 
God has visited this world with his salvation. And he will receive whoever will come to him through Christ Jesus by faith. And he will compassionately and reassuringly lead each one of those home.